Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Mary Chiarella has been described as a modern-day Florence Nightingale. Whether it be in her role as Chief Nursing Officer, or as the first Professor of Nursing for the Prison System, or indeed her many years in midwifery and palliative care, she has been a crusader and educator within the world of nursing for over 40 years. I loved hearing her warm, wise and uplifting perspective on life as we discussed her five. So Mary, welcome to Father My Life. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into your choices and your stories, I have to ask you, um, have any other of the guests' choices stood out for you? My word. You, you did warn me that you're going to ask me this. And so I'd listened to so many. I actually went back. And I think the one that resonated with me the most, and probably because her life sounded so much like mine, was Monica McInerney. Oh, wasn't she great? Oh, I just thought she was fantastic. And by the way, you're costing me a fortune because every time I go and listen to another one, I go and buy the blessed book. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have to go and buy the godmothers after listening again. That was great. And her story about her meeting her husband. Isn't that amazing? My great grandpa was a gypsy, so I'm totally sold on all that fortune telling stuff. Well, well, listen, we're here for your stories and your choices. And we always start with the film on Five My Life. And I have to admit, which is strange as a, you know, almost six year old, I'd never seen Easy Rider, which is your choice. And yes. obviously I've heard of it because yep, it's yep. one of the most iconic films ever shot. So uh, Easy Rider, 1969. Mm. Um, tell us why you have chosen that, Mary. Just let me say, I opted not to watch it again, by the way, because ah. I wanted to tell it about how it was when I saw it the first time. This is going to be a good comparison because I've seen it in the last 10 days. Okay. For the first time. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically I was... 17, I dropped out of school and was doing my A-levels at a College of Further Education. And my schooling in English literature was just so standard, you know, girls grammar school in Macclesfield, you know, it was absolutely bog standard. And we had this groovy hippie of an English teacher who was who basically looked at us all and said, look at you all, you little high school dropouts. I don't care if you passed your A-level English. I am having fun. You can either come along for the ride or not. And so we were doing Death of a Salesman as our choice of book. And he was sort of talking about middle America. And me, of course, you know, who having grown up in Macclesfield, knew about the entire world, said, oh, I just don't believe that middle America's as awful as you say. So he took us to see Easy Rider. And of course, at first it was, you know, the, the hippie scene was so big at that stage and all of the movie, we were all, all of us, you know, little high school dropouts who were there at the College of Further Education were grooving away on all of the you know, born to be wild and all that sort of thing. And then, of course, at the end, they get shot. Mm. And it was, it was, this sounds ridiculous, but it was like the end of innocence. Right. I was so horrified by a world about which I knew nothing. It was such a shock to me. 
And yet the movie was so seductive, you know, in, in every possible way. The music was fabulous. The the bikes, the hogs were amazing, yeah. you know. And, of course, Jack Nicholson, in my view. He was so beautiful. Astonishing. I, I mean, so I, I watched A, it's probably the best start of a film that I can remember the, the yes. two Stephen Wolf songs, the Pusher and then um, Born, Born to Be to Wild. Wild. Yeah, you set it up perfectly. But exactly as you said, Mary, is all three of the main characters die. I know it's like Game of Thrones, but sixty years ago. <laughs> I know, I know, and it was it was the best thing he could have done for me, or for all of us, really. But for me, you know, because I was just so lavender and it was so shocking then I started reading much more widely because of actually going to see that and so it changed my attitudes on life I'd I'd grown up in a very sheltered place which we'll talk about later I'm sure when we come to the hymn but I thought the world was a really nice place I did (laughs) (laughs) well I I have to ask you because I mean obviously drugs are are central to the entire plot of that film Mm. what is the the narrative and the relationship between Mary and drugs in your life have you always steered clear no no look I I, I did smoke dope at that stage I I thought everybody did frankly yeah but very little I was a great Tamla Motown fiend at that stage as well probably 16 and so we used to go to Manchester to the Twisted Wheel and I didn't do the all-nighters my mother would never have allowed me to but we used to dance there there was a lot of pill popping going on there which I knew about but never ever was involved in but then by the time I was 17 I decided I was a hippie so by that stage I was smoking some weed but it didn't suit me right used to make me go to sleep (laughs) <laughs> and and because I'm asthmatic, it used to stop me breathing as well because it has a respiratory depressant effect. So my friends used to have to sit up with me and shake me. Right. So I used to scare them. So yeah. I, it was a very short-lived relationship with, with drugs. <laughs> well, we're going to completely change the pace when we move to your... Uh, book and and I mean as on five my life I, I watch all the films I read all the books I, I listen to the songs mm-hmm. and research about it. Um, you chose a, a poem for every day of the year by Ali Esriri, published in two thousand and seventeen. Could you describe the book and tell us why you chose it? Oh look, it's it, it's wonderful. It was given as a gift to me last year. Basically, it is exactly as it says. It's the most eclectic collection of 365 poems and each poem has an introduction and an explanation and I only got it for my birthday last year and it came late so I didn't actually start doing it until about September last year ah. and so I haven't done a year yet have, have you got to uh, the 22nd of May no that's my favourite poem from that because I've, I've read every single poem I cheated oh, because you, you chose it I, I couldn't wait for a year because <laughs> I'm interviewing you now <laughs> <laughs> well I haven't finished it yet but one of the ones that was lovely for me at Christmas there was a poem called The Oxen and it's by Thomas Hardy and when I was a child it used to be the poem that my father recited every Christmas Ah. Eve so I had goosebumps because it's actually a poem about I don't know if you know it Christmas Eve and 12 of the clock now they're all on the knees an elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers on fireside ease and it's basically this legend about the fact that on Christmas Eve the cows kneel down and the horses kneel down because of the birth of Christ and so my father used to recite the poem we go come on dad can we go can we go can we go <laughs> oh no you don't disturb them when they're doing it <laughs> fantastic so we never got to see the oxen kneeling but 
I'd forgotten it. You know, I'd forgotten yeah. the story until there's the poem in front of me. And there's so many that I've read already that I go, oh, my God, that one, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and are you uh, into a habit of reading one a day like it? Like you I do. do. And, and wake up and do it or, or normally first thing in the morning. Yeah. Wow. And it's it's just a joy. I mean, poetry is such a part of my life. My f- mother used to write poetry. My father read poetry to us. And so poetry from a really little age was, you know, part of everything that I knew. Basically, in my mother's family, there is a history of writing poetry. Right. So I was I, I was the recipient about 10 years ago now of a poem, and I had to check the date. It was called On the Cloud. It was written in 1888 by a chap who would have been my great-great-uncle Joseph Bowler. Yes. And he just writes this beautiful poem, and he was a farmer, you know? In, in the north of England. And he's writing this poem about sitting up on top of a hill called Bosley Cloud and just thinking about the seasons and how they relate to life. So both my brothers write poetry. I write poetry. Not good, but we've all written poetry, you know, all our lives. And I just have always loved it. And even my kids, when I was little, I used to read them poetry, different poems. They would say to me, they'd come home with a dilemma. Have we got a poem for this, Mum? Right. You know, so poetry is just, it's, it's, I, I used to say in, in a sort of a, an alcohol analogy, poetry's like a vodka shot to me, whereas prose is, I don't know, like having a glass of wine or something or beer, maybe. I don't drink beer, so yeah. that won't do. But it, it's, it's a longer job to get the same result that you get from a poem. So, so Ali, the, 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 the person who compiled the book, mm-hmm. uh, she's got a, a quote which is, poetry exists somewhere between everyday language and music. Isn't that beautiful? It is absolutely stunning, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're going to move to uh, your um, song and we're going back a couple of hundred years to 1863. <laughs> to uh, And we, there's a Spotify playlist of every song on Five My Life. And it, it's sensational because wow. it's very, very eclectic. And, and so I'm thrilled to be adding this one because it's the hymn to Thee, O Lord, Our Hearts We Raise... Uh, written by uh, William Chatterton Dix. Yes. Uh, he, he ripped off Psalm 65, I, I <laughs> discovered in my research. But that's a, well, well, we'll let him do it. It's a harvest hymn. It is. Uh, could you tell us why you have chosen that? So because you, you were asking for different parts of our lives, this harvest hymn is a joyous, it's a wondrous, joyous hymn. To thee, O Lord, our hearts be raised with hymns of adoration. To thee bring sacrifice of praise with shouts of exultation. You know, it's... It's up there. And when we were kids, I grew up on a farm and a farm which is a hill farm in the north of England. Harvest is a great time of year because the hazing and for us making hay in the north of England was not easy. You know, it really isn't. So the hazing and then the harvest festival is a happy time of year because the crops are gathered. And it's a time of year when you're celebrating after the work, which it, for farmers is unusual. And we have Harvest Supper. I come from this tiny little village and the church was like the centre of everything. It was, my parents weren't particularly religious, by the way, it was just social. But dad was a sidesman, so we went three times on a Sunday and that sort of thing. And, you know, I used to make eyes at the choir boys when I got a bit older. And then there was Youth Fellowship, which was all about how you met boys, basically. You know, so it was it was very much a, a social event. But this hymn was such a happy time because we knew, you know, you'd had harvest supper the night before, there'd be a big feast after going to the harvest festival. And so it was a very happy time, whereas Christmas for us is such hard work. 
basically for us at Christmas, it was turkeys. So, yep. so we bred turkeys and then plucked them and sold them. And, and we had a milk round, so we milked cows. So there was milk to be delivered, cream to be delivered, eggs to be delivered. You know, by the time my parents got to Christmas Eve, they were absolutely knackered and so were we. Right. I mean, from a very young age, I had to pull the ink quills out of turkeys' bottoms with tweezers. You know, they'd squirt everywhere. It was disgusting. <laughs> so harvest was the wonderful time of year. And as it happened, I also, my first marriage was at Harvest. Right. So we used the hymn, because it is such a hymn of joy, for our wedding hymn. And then when my first husband died, we played it at his funeral, because there's, right. there's also a verse in it, which is about gathering in the sheaves. May we, the harvest reaping o'er, stand at the last accepted, Christ's golden sheaves forevermore, to garner's bright elected. You know, and so there's this sense of the end of it as well. Lorenz, my husband, he basically didn't know anything about Anglican church services, <laughs> believe you me. But but he loved the hymn. He could see the beauty in the hymn and the joy. And so whilst I'm, I you know, say I'm, I'm not religious, I was a bit anxious about choosing it. But it was, it was such a part of my life, this hymn. Right. So it was part of my childhood. Then it was my marital hymn. And then it was actually Laurie's funeral hymn. So we had it for all three. How long were you married to Laurie? For 30 years. We were together for 34. Met him when I was 21. We married when I was 25. And he died when I was 54. So, but he was, you know, I'd never been grown up without him, really. Yeah. You know, so he was a, a joyous, wondrous, big, noisy part of my life. Right. I think your fourth choice is going to lead to you talking about him. In, indeed. my Yes, my yeah. possession. <laughs> We're moving to your place now. Yes. And you have chosen the three-tiered cast-iron fountain uh, in the courtyard of Sydney Hospital. It's true. Well, basically, it's not the fountain. It's the building behind it that I've right. chosen, which is the Nightingale Wing. OK. Which sits behind it. Yes. And it is in that courtyard with the fountain. Yeah. And the Nightingale Wing was built by... Under the instructions of Florence Nightingale. Uh, herself, the, the, the real... Yes, right. the, 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 real, the real McCoy. Yep. Uh, it was designed by a chap called Thomas Rowe, but she actually had input into the design. And it was built for Lucy Osborne, who was the first nurse to set up a nurse training school here. She was a Nightingale trainee. Right. And she came out here, I think, in about 1862. And that was her nursing school. And when I was chief nurse for New South Wales, I had the privilege of being able to go into the Nightingale Museum and see all around it. Lucy Osborne's desk is there. Right. And when I was doing my PhD, so my PhD is actually in law, but I was looking at the legal and professional status of the registered nurse. And I looked at Commonwealth jurisdictions. So I looked at, obviously, Australia. And I had the privilege of reading Lucy Osborne's letters to Florence Nightingale and vice versa as a result of this. And when Osborne arrived, of course, she'd come from the Nightingale School. You know, she was strictly trained in hygiene and all those sorts of things. We didn't know about germs at that stage, but Nightingale believed in what she called were miasmas. Right. And so she believed that these were bad air currents. I mean, it's not bad, is it? You know, she... Got it yeah. pretty right, frankly. Think about what we're doing today. Yeah. And so she believed in ventilation. And if you look at the end of the Nightingale Wing, if you stand with your back to the domain 
and look at the end of the Nightingale Wing, you can see these huge French doors that open up where she wanted the miasmas to be washed out. Right. Osborne was actually, she was the subject of so much uh, antipathy from the surgeons who didn't wash their hands and didn't keep things clean and, you know, basically were spreading germs all over the place. She had terrible fights with them. I gather the first thing she did when she got there was she ordered 17 scrubbers to come to clean the place because it was so filthy. She completely transformed it. And she had this little Jack Russell that she used to keep for fighting the rats because there were a lot of them. And these chaps were desperate for her to go back to England. They so wanted her to go away and leave them alone to behave as they had all along. And of course, she didn't. But eventually they had her Jack Russell put down. And in one of the letters, she writes to Nightingale and she says, I can only now tell you the true meaning of solitude. And when I was chief nurse, it was a really difficult time. We had SARS all across Asia at that stage. But also we had Camden Campbelltown. Our nurses were being spat at in the supermarkets and it was a it was a terrible time. And I used to go and sit there and look at that fountain and think, now, listen, if Lucy Osborne can do this in the face of that sort of opposition, you can jolly well put your big girl knickers on <laughs> and get back in there and do it. So but you've had an incredibly distinguished career in nursing. It is 45 years. Is it? Indeed. And, and, and am I right that you were the first professor of nursing in prisons? I was. I was. It was such a fascinating job. The, the chap who was at that time the chair of the board, I'd gone to see him to have an argument with him about something else. He told me initially that he could give me 15 minutes. We talked for nearly two hours. Ron Penny, his name was, Professor Ron Penny, and he was just wonderful. I loved the bones of that man. Anyway, at the end of it, he said to me, have you ever thought of being the professor of nursing in the prison system? And I said, I know nothing about mental health. I know nothing about drug and alcohol. I know nothing about indigenous health. And he said, you don't need to. We have all our experts there. And he said, what they need is leadership and they need passion and you've got it. And so I applied for the job and I got it. And it was the most wonderful job I've ever had in my whole life. The nurses and doctors, and it's mainly nurses who work in that system, I have never been more impressed with a group of nurses ever. And I've worked with some pretty special ones in my time. It's the only place I've worked where every single person, Nigel, knew their mission statement. Right. It didn't matter what jail you went to in New South Wales. And and I was, you know, I went to all the jails in New South Wales, every single one. You were a jailbird. Oh, yeah, I've done a lot of jails. The nurses, when you'd you'd go there, they'd say, you know what our mission statement is? And they were proud of it, you know. And And I'd say, please tell me. And they'd say, our mission statement is to give as good a care to the people in here as we would give to them outside of here. Fabulous. And they said, we don't want to judge them because actually... What you see in our prison system is a distillation of everything we've ever managed badly in society. And if we spent money on looking after those poor disadvantaged people from the get go through our you know, home visiting systems, through our mental health systems, we wouldn't have our prisons full, which is why, by the way, just as an aside, private prisons worry the bejesus out of me. Because if your business is to run a prison, why would you be interested in not running prisons? Yeah. If, if we invested in primary health, apparently it costs more per night to keep someone in prison than it would to put them in the intercontinental. I'm, I'm going to ask you about a concept that I've heard you or I've read about you talking about, uh, appreciative inquiry. Yes. Would you mind telling us about that? I'd love to. So basically, this was a wonderful piece of work that was done. It was headed up by a professor of nursing from UTS called Catherine Fowler. 
And basically what they did was they went into the jails where the young women are allowed to keep their babies for a certain length of time. And remember that these young women have probably been terribly parented, but they've got these new babies, you know, and they're being allowed to keep them. And in a way, for a while, by the way, not necessarily forever, but certainly when they're little, in a way it was a, a sense of hope to them, but often they didn't know what to do. And Catherine Fowler and her team went in and they worked with these women using this technique called appreciative inquiry, which is where you don't tell them what to do and you don't criticise them. You find something, anything good, and you actually work from their benefits and their strengths. They would say things like, look, look, the baby's smiling at you. You've made the baby smile. Could have been wind, yeah. you know, but basically these people go, oh. <laughs> my baby smile, you know, and and building on that. I mean, and we now have, by the way, a much bigger concept. It's called learning from excellence. Right. So, you know, it's it's the same sort of thing that what we're trying to look at now. This guy, by the way, is called Adrian Plunkett. And he believes that what we should be doing is focusing on what we do really well in health. I love it. I just love yep. this concept. Because for years and years, we've been learning from error. Yeah. So we know, by the way, that, you know, one in four people who comes into the health system will have some sort of an adverse event if they stay overnight. One in 10 who comes into contact with the health system will have an adverse event. But what he says, that means nine in 10 don't. Right. Three out of four don't. Think how chaotic it is. Think how crazy it is. Think how busy it is. And we manage to keep them safe. And what do we do on the craziest days when it's just so insane and nothing goes wrong? We go, phew. He says what we should be doing is, what did we do right? Yes. What happened today that enabled us to keep all these people safe, you know, for no yeah. reason? And it, so that's the same as appreciative inquiry, except on a bigger scale. I love it. There's another notion I've uh, read you talking about, which really had an impact on me, Mary, uh, is you, you've spent many years working in the hospice. Yes. And one of the things you said is the thing that stunned you was unlike other patients every patient in a hospice environment is in total control they've taken control of their lives would yes. you mind talking to that so that was the most amazing thing that i found when i went to work in hospice i went i went to hospice work out of curiosity my background was anesthetics nursing there were these guys who were doing really early pain management and we met hospice patients obviously my job as the nurse is often to be with them while procedures are going on and that sort of thing so you chat and they'd say things like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in so-and-so's hospice. You know, I'm such and such a hospice. This was in the really early days. And they'd say, you know, I told the radiotherapist I didn't want any more radiotherapy. I didn't want to be burnt to bits anymore. Or I told the chemo, the, you know, the, the oncologist that didn't want any more chemotherapy because it, I knew I was going to die. And I just wanted to be able to eat and drink what I wanted without being sick. You realise that even though they know why they've gone into the hospice, even though they know what the outcome is going to be... Actually, for the probably for the first time in some time, they believe that now this is their decision. Right. It's in their hands. They're saying, okay, I know what's going to happen, but actually this is my choice. And so when I went to work in hospice care, I was just blown away by them. You, you might think it's a really sad place. And, and of course, it's sad when people die. Don't, not for a moment, is it not? But the sense of control that they had and the dignity you know, that was the thing that just blew me away was this this incredible dignity. You know, I mean, the thing I say about nursing is that, you know, you learn in nursing that ordinary people are capable of greatness. 
you know, and that was the thing that just knocks me out. Uh, it's very thought provoking because sometimes it takes something like that for you to focus on what's important and wouldn't it be a gift if you could say to a 15 year old or an 18 year old or a 22 year old you know don't wait until you're in a hospice and you know you've got six weeks left mm. you know you've got your life ahead of you it's a real gift which is going to bring us on to your uh fifth choice uh where i think you're going to talk about Laurie, mm -hmm. your, your uh, possession is uh, your home in Sydney. So yes. first of all, uh, describe where it is, what it is, and then tell us why you've chosen that. It's in Mossman. sounds terribly grand until it's... My father-in-law bought it for us. He said it was the worst house in the best suburb. Mm. And it was a tiny two-bedroom cottage. But my late, my first late husband, I'm widowed twice, as you know, but my first late husband was, a neuros was an architect. Yeah. So basically, he built the place from scratch. Then he got a job. <laughs> So he stopped building it. Right. And so we lived in this half-built house forever with no architraves, holes between the ceiling and the roof, uh, the walls and the roof, rather, nothing on the walls, no cupboard doors. My friends would come and go, oh my God, you know, I've got cupboard doors. <laughs> and and we go to the openings of buildings that Laurie had designed and people go, oh my God, you know, he's so talented. And I go, yes. <laughs> and, I'd, and I'd say to him, put the doors on the cupboard or else I'll invite them home. <laughs> but it was, a, it was just a place of absolute joy. And it didn't matter, truly, that right. there weren't any doors on the cupboards. It was just the happiest, most wondrous place. It was, for me, it was like my home, my Jarman, where I grew up, because it was always full of people. And Lorenz was just wonderful. Like, he was loud and noisy and ebullient. And he just took life with both hands. And I was always really glad to slipstream him, but I love being in my home. And so I loved entertaining. He came from a big entertaining family, so did I. So the Italian and the north of England actually gelled yeah. very well. It was just always full. You know, the kids came, they brought their friends. It was always just this wondrous place. And then suddenly when Laurie died, he died very suddenly. He had a heart attack and crashed our car. It was a terrible, terrible shock to all of us. It was sort of around the time of the global financial crisis. They, ha they had some financial difficulties at the time. And people started suing me because I was sole executrix of our, oh. our estate, of his estate. So you're grieving and you're being sued. Sued two weeks after the first piece of litigation came through. And I thought I might lose the house. Mm. I, I didn't. I just thought I couldn't bear it, you know, because... Before he died, he knew there was financial difficulties. And he'd said, you know, look, we might lose the house. And I'd say, well, it doesn't matter because we've got each other. Right. It doesn't matter where we are. And then suddenly when I didn't have him, hmm. it mattered enormously. I managed to save it, mainly through the way that we'd set up the ownership of the house. It came directly to me. It wasn't like half and half. Hmm. So that was, a, that was a great relief. And I couldn't remember how we'd set it up, by the way. And and I certainly didn't have the wherewithal at that time. You know, I was absolutely broken. And so were my kids. So they mm. were my most important thing. You know, their dad had gone. So we, we got the house. We still had to go through all the litigation. And and then I met Martin, who was my second husband. And when he came to my house, he said, oh, my God, he, he'd grown up in Rhodesia. His father was a professor of law at Salisbury and his mother was a journalist and they had this home called Tandara. And he said, my God, your house is just like Tandara. It's full of fascinating people who sit around and they don't care what they eat and drink as long as they can talk. You know, that, that was how he saw it. So he lived there for the whole of his life. And basically six months after we'd met, he was diagnosed with 
throat mm. cancer, stage four. And so we only had two and a half years together. And he very much wanted to get married, which we did eventually because Martin wanted it very much. And so we only had a year being married together. Right. Again, you know, it, it's a bit like people who, who are in palliative care. It was joyous. It was a really special time. And because we knew... Because you knew it was limited. We knew it was limited. We didn't waste a nanosecond. And, and also one of the things after... Because I had cancer when I was 49 and Laurie didn't die until I was 54. And so again, those last six years with Lorenz were so critical because we thought I might die. Right. You know, so again, that kind of focus on what really matters and, and what is wondrous. You know, we had that. And it was, it was wonderful. So my home now, like it's it's full of wonderful memories. Yeah, you're still in the same place. I'm still in the same oh, home. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, right, right, right. right. And, and when I walk in, first after Lorenz died, it felt like I was a pee in a bucket. You know, mm. I I felt I'd rattled around it, but I've I've reorganised it and and I finished the cupboards and the kitchen and the <laughs> walls. By the way, <laughs> over the years, and Martin was very handy. So <laughs> lots yeah. of the jobs that Lorenz would never have done, Martin did. But it's it, it feels like I've been wrapped in a warm blanket when I walk into it. It is just this place of joy. It's really uh, inspiring to hear you talk. I mean, that, that's, that is on, uh, on one obvious level a very tragic story, but you're talking, you know, incredibly uh, joyously about it. And I, I was listening today, again, I, I listened this morning to Monica McInerney, and she made the comment that her life was forged with love and grief, and so is mine. Yeah. That is, I think, one of the things that makes you live every minute. And I see myself as blessed because I've been loved by two extraordinary, well, no, more than two, my dad, my brothers, yeah. you know, my sons, by lots of wonderful human beings and, and my girlfriends. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I have the best women friends on earth. The day that Laurie died, we came back from the hospital because we had to go and identify him. We came back from the hospital and four of my women friends were sitting on my front doorstep. Mm. And they just walked in and they started cleaning my cupboards, which I suspect they'd wanted to do <laughs> forever, by the way. But they just never left. Those first two weeks, I was never on my own. We were never on our own. And so I am, you know, I see myself not as, not as a figure of pity, but as, as someone who has been incredibly blessed we, we can't avoid grief. We can't avoid tragedy. You don't know who it's going to hit and you don't know when it's going to hit. So the important thing is to live the best life you can, isn't it? And my dad, who was an extraordinary man, he was like the local magistrate and the local rural chair of the rural district council, chair of the housing committee. You name it, dad did it, you know. He wrote in my autograph book when I was five a quote, which is, I shall pass through this world but once. Any good thing that I can do, let me now do it. Let me not defer it nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. And then underneath it, he wrote, this is how I've lived my life, Mary. I hope you will live yours in the same way. That is the most perfect end story and quote for five of my life. That's just such a lovely, you were only here once. I hope to live, you know, my life the best way I can. Wonderful. Mary, there is one further question. Yes. That you will know, because I know you've listened to lots of the other episodes, is, is who would you like to hear on Five My Life next? Like Monica, I'm going to be very parochial and okay. say that this is a friend of mine. And she is a friend of mine called Amanda Adrian. Amanda Adrian. Yes. She is a nurse and a lawyer like I am. Okay. 
and she has had an incredibly checkered career. She's now retired and as a retired nurse and lawyer, she has actually become a painter. She's a very good artist. She's just had some exhibitions in Canberra. She also is, like me, a passionate conservationist. So we're both hugely interested in environmental issues in relation to health. And she is also the president of the local rural district fire service. Wow. So she is a dynamo. And it won't matter which bit of her life you look at, you'll be fascinated. Well, I I look forward to hearing her stories on Five My Life. And I'm going to end with a quote from Florence Nightingale that you have at the base of your emails. Yes. Which is, let us never consider ourselves finished nurses. We must be learning all our lives. Wise words, Mary. Thank you so much for sharing on Five My Life. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Five of My Life, presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Our producer is Mandy Coolan. Theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholas. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the challenge, please message us on The Five of My Life Instagram page. I love hearing from you and appreciate all your suggestions. <laughs>